Hi, everyone. I'm Greg Rashuni, and I'm the Executive Director of the Aspen Institute's Energy and Environment Program. For more than 50 years, our program has been gathering some of the smartest minds to answer the toughest questions of our age. I'm glad to welcome you to this new series. Starting today and every other Wednesday for the coming weeks and months, we will be bringing you a new virtual exchange of ideas called Innovators in Blank, with a focus on the people who are leading the way in their space with creative and exciting ideas to answer the hard questions we face today and will face tomorrow in the climate, energy, and environment space. Our next edition on May 13th will be Innovators in Energy, a discussion with Varun Sivaram about energy policy, deep decarbonization in the US and India, and how our countries can work together to build a better future. So register today for that. You can also get more info by going to aspeninstitute.org ee, um, or following us on Twitter at AI Environment. So today we're talking about innovators and resilience. Our first innovator is Melissa Roberts. I'll talk with Melissa for a little bit and then turn to questions from you. So please submit them through the Q&A button at the bottom of the screen. Melissa is the founder and executive director of the American Flood Coalition, where she supports coalition membership, leads policy development, and guides strategy for the coalition's mission of advocating for national solutions to flooding and sea level rise. The coalition's diverse membership include members of Congress, elected officials, military leaders, cities, counties, businesses, and civic and educational organizations from 13 coastal states. Welcome, Melissa. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. Glad to have you. Um, so uh, let's start with how are you doing? Doing well, adjusting to this new world we're in and, you know, grateful to be here kicking off this series. Excellent. Well, um, let's dive right in. Um, talk about uh, a little bit about your organization, the American Flood Coalition, and how you founded the group and the work that you do. Yeah, absolutely. And thanks for that great intro about our work. So we're a nonprofit focused on flooding and sea level rise. And we support a nonpartisan coalition of a lot of those folks you mentioned who are really on the front lines of flooding and having to adapt to this new reality of stronger storms, higher seas, more frequent flooding at a really rapid pace. And often for these communities on the front lines of flooding, they're doing this within the structure of policies at the state and federal level that, you know, were created decades ago and just haven't kept pace with the changes that we're seeing and the needs that we have today. And, you know, I, we're lucky we just had our second birthday as an organization in March and, you know, founded the organization two years ago, really because I was working at another organization, First Street Foundation, focused on data around flooding and was grappling with the question of, you know, thinking how do, you know, we have all this data available, but how do we support folks in making better, making better decisions around this data? We're putting good data out there, but why aren't we getting better decisions? And what we found was really, there's so many things that go into that. This is a complex problem and that we needed a whole coalition that could support better decision-making at the local level and raise those concerns to get better policy at the state and federal level. Excellent. Well, um, you know, we're, uh, we're finishing up the fastest month that I've ever experienced in my life, April, after the slowest month that I've ever experienced, which was March. Um, <laughs> but I know next month starts the hurricane season uh, towards yeah. the end of the month. Um, 
you've talked about um, preparing for dual disasters. Um, it sounds like a, you know, a big idea, a little scary. Um, what are the disasters we're preparing for and how can we be, be, be better prepared? Yeah, this is something we're thinking a lot about at the coalition and with the communities we work with because unfortunately what we're seeing now in this kind of dual disaster scenario is the layering of risks that we did know about that were known risks with these really unknown and surprising risks of COVID. And the way I think about this is we had kind of the layering of the known known. So the trends on flooding are exceptionally clear. We look back at the data and we see sea level rise, we see, you know, more hurricane intensity, more intense precipitation, and the trend line is incredibly clear. We have the known unknowns, so we know that this is getting worse. We don't know exactly what each year will bring. Unfortunately, this year, it looks like we're in for a particularly difficult spring flooding season and a more intense hurricane season. We don't know what each storm will bring each year, but we know what the trend looks like. And then we're layering these kind of known unknowns on top of, you know, the unknown unknowns, what's happened with the COVID-19 pandemic that would have been hard to predict. But the culmination of these really unfolding on top of each other, we've seen threading, flooding as a threat multiplier where it's really hard to respond to hurricanes and to spring flooding in the context of the pandemic. And we're also going to see that, unfortunately, flooding is going to make it harder to have a good public health response if we don't kind of take these both in stride. Um, and so I guess starting with, um, you know, what do people do if there is, you know, a big hurricane heading towards them? Um, in the mm -hmm. past, you know, if you remember the pictures from Hurricane Katrina, everyone, a lot of people went to um, the, the football stadium and kind of gathered mm -hmm. there. But now with the pandemic also, like what what are the options for people, um, uh, you know, in terms of evacuation and, and even moving around. Yeah, no, that's a great point. And to illustrate some of the challenges, I mean, as you're saying, when you think about a hurricane evacuation response, you probably immediately think of, you know, folks packed together in a gym, and that's just not going to be possible with COVID-19. We have to think of where do you put people? How do you separate the sick from the well, from the potentially infected? And there are good creative solutions here. There's never been more hotel capacity, for instance. But thinking about how do we contract that in advance? How do we make sure we're thinking ahead to what we might need for a flood response? And so that those are designated and not being used or commingled now so that they're you know, sanitary later on. That's all things we need to think about. We need to think about how we're going to communicate when there might need to be an evacuation because for five weeks now, the public health message has been stay in your home at all costs. And so if that changes and we might need people to act differently, we're going to really need to think about how we communicate that, communicate that in multiple languages, including to vulnerable populations so that we can move. And the other piece that we need to think about is in disasters, we really rely on a lot of community responses. We rely on food banks, we rely on volunteers, and that might not be possible. So how do we think about having a response that takes that into account. You know, food banks have been under enormous strain, so we might not be able to expect the same response. Volunteers, it might not be safe for them to, you know, go in in the same way. They're having shortages of the same types of PPE equipment. They often need to go into a home that might have mildew or things like that. And so these are all challenges we can overcome, 
We just need to think about them as far in advance as possible so that they're not all occurring to us as we're in the midst of reacting to a flood or a hurricane. And are you hearing from, like for some of your membership are local leaders and mm -hmm. local um, organizations, are you hearing about, um, you know, personnel fatigue in terms of, um, you know, having been responding to this disaster for the last six to eight weeks, um, that there might not be the available people to respond to um, a second or, you know, a dual disaster um, in the coming weeks or months? Absolutely. I mean, it's a great point that it's the same folks that are often in charge of dealing with both of these disasters at the local level. And it's, you know, I think we're seeing people rise to the occasion, but it's just a lot to ask of some of these same responders. And at the federal level, it's really worth thinking, you know, for the first time in its history, there were disaster declarations across all 50 states from COVID-19. And the bulk of the response is being run through FEMA which is the same agency that we ask to respond when we have a hurricane or a flood. And so that's going to be enormously challenging already in the last couple of years. We've seen FEMA really having difficulty with the number of disasters it's being asked to respond to at the same time. So layering that and the federal response on top of the pandemic response being run through FEMA is going to be an enormous challenge. Yeah, no, I completely agree with that. Um, so you're, you've said before, you, you're, kind of your slogan is, we get the results that we build into the system. Um, mm -hmm. What results um, are you looking at in the social equity space and, you know, in terms of preparing for the dual disasters? And like, mm -hmm. what are we failing to build into the system? Like, what, where are our vulnerabilities in terms of vulnerable populations um, in responding to these disasters? Yeah. No, that's a great question, because I think, unfortunately, what we see is that, you know, a lot of the results we're seeing now that are getting light shed on them in COVID-19 are some of the same problems we've seen after multiple natural disasters that we haven't addressed. So, you know, one really vivid example is that we've known from years and years of data that after you know, a flood or a hurricane, 40 to 60% of small businesses don't reopen because the programs we have in place to support them don't meet their needs. And a lot, it, you know, there are people working to change that, but in a lot of ways we've written that off as an acceptable outcome. And unfortunately we're seeing that now play out at you know, a much larger scale of magnitude where it turns out even if you allocate dollars, they're not reaching people in a way that works to keep small businesses you know, um, alive. And so, we're seeing the consequences of what we have left unaddressed play out. And so a couple pieces to really call on are, you know, first, I think it's worth noting in every disaster, what we see is that vulnerable populations bear the brunt of disaster impacts. And so we need to address these challenges with policy solutions. And we've seen these play out and we haven't fixed them. And I think there's three really big points. First is that we know that risk is distributed unevenly due to historic inequalities. And if we don't start there, we can't get very far. And this is true in the flood space and in the health space. We know that where people live and how much risk and exposure they have to flooding isn't distributed equally. And we also know in the health space that risk isn't distributed equally. And if we don't come in with policies that address that, we're not gonna get close to having equal outcomes. So we really have to start there. I think the second piece that unfortunately is feeling really relevant as we're in the midst of this pandemic is that 
during disasters, programs really don't often don't work for the people who need them most. So in the disaster space, we see a lot of problems with cash flow and bank account access issues that can actually prevent the most vulnerable from being able to access the programs they need, where programs like the ones that allow you to use a hotel if your home's uninhabitable, you can only access that government program if you can put down a credit card for incidentals at the hotel. So we're leaving out the people who need it most who don't have access to a credit card. And so we're seeing, and we're seeing a lot of those same cash flow and bank account issues play out now, unfortunately. And the third one that I think we have a chance to address is that we've seen over and over again with disasters that vulnerable and marginalized populations recover slowly, if at all. And as we think about the response we're going to need to mount in to, you know, for years to COVID-19, we really need to think about how do we have a response that makes sure that that's not how this plays out because we've seen it again and again in the disaster space. So speaking of the response to this, um, Congress just passed and the president signed mm -hmm. in the last few days, kind of either phase 3.5 or phase four, depending <laughs> on what you call it, um, of the recovery packages. Um, but there's been a lot of talk about a future phase, uh, including mm -hmm. being an infrastructure package to help America get back to work. Um, and so how do you, I guess, how do you think about that? Um, what are, what would your priorities be with that? And how do you build resilience into something like that, that could both help um, kind of COVID related um, mm -hmm. infrastructure, but also uh, floods and sea level rise related infrastructure? Yeah. And I'm really excited about the potential opportunity there because I think, you know, we have an opportunity to create good jobs with any infrastructure package. And I think we really have a mandate to incentivize and invest in resilient infrastructure. We know that no matter what we build, these, if we're building resilient projects, if we're doing a typical construction project, these tend to be good jobs that can't be outsourced, that have good knock-on effects in the local community. But we also know that if we make sure to incentivize resilient projects, we get a lot of extra things along with that. If we reduce flooding and build resilience into infrastructure, that can mitigate other natural disasters, we can make sure we won't be in this situation again of dealing with dual disasters at the same time. And also the scale of an infrastructure package that we're thinking of and that people are talking about would really dramatically reshape the way a lot of our communities look. We're talking about a, you know large scales of money and in a system where a lot of our infrastructure stock hasn't had that type of investment in a long time. So this is a moment where we can really change what our cities look like and how resilient we are. And we really have a mandate to make sure that these projects are structured so that our communities are better prepared. And if we do this well, there are other benefits too. If it's more resilient, we have to rebuild them less after disasters. We know a dollar invested before a disaster can save six. We can get things like coastal restoration and other quality of life benefits. So if we construct this right, I think there's a lot of things that can go well. Are there good local examples of some of the projects that you think kind of should, you know, should be funded as part of this that you can kind of elaborate on? Yeah. So I think a great example um, that's actually underway is thinking about, you know, something that's been done in the city of Miami. So they were able to raise the money locally, which is something I realize not every city is going to be able to do, but they put $192 million towards sea level rise and adaptation infrastructure 
And one of the things that's really great to call out about that is because they actually had a plan to address some of the flooding, they were able to see actually a rise in their bond rating, which is going to be really important to our cities at a time when a lot of them are struggling with their budget and are going to be facing, I think, a lot of the budgetary ramifications for a long time. And as they've been able to go through and put projects together, they're in a process of getting community input, actually, you know, mitigating direct flooding. So places where there were roads and other places that used to cause kind of daily problems, they're able to actually address those kind of one by one and create other co-benefits. So projects like parks create, you know, benefits for the community, create walkability and other things that we want while also being able to absorb flood water that would otherwise end up in the street in someone's yard. And I think there's a lot of really smart projects like that that do all of it if we can kind of pick the right projects and invest in them. And uh, who are some of the leaders that you've been working with that are your most, um, you're most optimistic about, uh, you know, kind of on a local level that they can, you know, lead this change, like turn the ship and um, really help some of these communities? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, we've seen leaders across the board. I think in Charleston, there's been a huge amount of activity around really re-envisioning what the city can look like. In Virginia, especially in Hampton Roads and Norfolk, they've really led the nation, I think, in thinking about um, working with the military base there, building and resilient, changing zoning, um, and thinking about conservation areas in, as I mentioned, Miami has really been a leader also in getting community buy-in for this set of projects, which is really unique. And we've seen leadership up across the board in North Florida as well. And so we're seeing a lot of signs of hope of leaders at all levels, whether it's, you know, chambers of commerce, council members, mayors, who are kind of leading the charge on this and are seeing why this matters locally. Um, so we're approaching hurricane season and flooding season. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the, the COVID-19 uh, uh, pandemic continues, although some states are starting to open up. What um, are you most hopeful for um, as we kind of continue over the next couple of weeks to a couple of months? Yeah, I think two things. One interesting thing about being in kind of the disaster space and the flood space is you do see that often these challenges bring out the best in people. You were just asking about our leaders and our network. And I'm always surprised by just the generosity of folks after they've gone through challenges like a hurricane or a storm or a flood in their community, how eager they are to help others, even as they're still in the midst of recovery. So I, I feel like we just see people step up to meet the challenge in front of them. And I think we're seeing that here too. And, you know, more tangibly, I think, unfortunately, as we started, we started with this kind of dual disaster paradigm, which isn't very encouraging, but I'm incredibly encouraged by the idea that as we're seeing these challenges unfold together, we could see solutions that actually address both, right? We have, when we think about the stimulus and infrastructure, we could take the same dollar and actually solve both problems. And as we see some of the cracks in the system for disaster response, we could use this moment to really address it, not just for the pandemic, but for the last couple decades of problems that we've seen. Yeah, and I mean, I think we're, we're seeing a lot of um, 
Americans coming together and helping each other in ways of mm -hmm. staying apart, but also, you know, making sure that people are getting the support that they need. So I've got two more questions. Um, for those, for everyone watching, if you have questions, make sure to um, ask them using the Q&A feature at the bottom of your screen. And I know we've gotten a bunch of questions in already. Um, so I've got two more quick ones for you. Um, if you were granted one wish to enact a policy or action on the federal level, what would you do? Yeah, it's been waiting for someone to ask me this, right? Um, I mean, the biggest thing that I would do is right now, for the most part, we spend $1 pre-disaster for every $9 we spend post-disaster on the system. And that's why for the most part, we don't get good results. And we spend nine of those dollars after people have already been hurt, properties been damaged. I'd like to flip that as much as we can, right? How do we spend the bulk of the money preparing and protecting people and then having to spend very little on the back end for what damages we couldn't protect against. And my last question before we turn to the audience is, what has been your uh, go-to comfort food since uh, the quarantine began? I know mine has been nachos, unfortunately, um, which I'm weaning mm. myself off of. What's, uh, what's your go-to? Uh, yeah, over here we've been doing a lot of chili because it's made uh, mostly with uh, shelf-stable pantry items. So that's been working well. Uh, a lot of chocolate, um, and then occasionally a more ambitious dessert project. Excellent. Well, um, hopefully we will all soon be out and eating less chili and nachos than yeah. we have before. Um, so I'm gonna, uh, I, we have a, a list of uh, questions that are already coming in. So uh, first question um, from Richard. Um, how will the flood coalition work in 2020, 2021 with global insurance and reinsurance to incentivize pre-disaster risk mitigation investment, especially in a period where public sector financing will be challenged? Yeah, that's a great question. And so those are, you know, partners and stakeholders that we already work with. And I think they're a really important piece of the puzzle. And I think one of the most important pieces there is trying to translate for cities what sort of options they have that could be more innovative or might work better. So one example is in some places it can work really well, you know, to use a different type of instrument. So it could be parametric insurance, it could be doing an environmental impact bond instead of a traditional bond that uses a different measure. So across the board, whether it's insurance instruments, or more broadly financing instruments, what we try to do is be kind of a neutral party who can help explain where some of these might fit in and bring other instruments to the table that could be better fits. Because I think one thing that's key is we can't solve these new problems and challenges with the same tools that we've used in the past. They're just not always up to the challenge. Yeah, we need to really innovate the, the tools we use and not just how we use them. Um, mm -hmm. So a uh, question from Katie, um, COVID and flooding devastate low income and communities of color. Um, UCS analyzed hotspots where the two collide. Are there any um, insights that you have on equitable resilience and kind of how to, how to do that? Yeah, absolutely. And actually we just released um, the first in a series of knowledge pieces we're doing on how COVID and um, flooding are overlapping in hotspots in the Midwest. 
And so if folks are interested, um, definitely go to our website there and check that out. And we're continuing that analysis to look at some of the hurricane uh, overlaps as well. Um, but that's exactly what we're seeing. We're seeing areas that are lower income, rural, communities of color. We're seeing these really pernicious overlaps that are difficult. And the number one thing that we're trying to do to address that is to say, how can we flag some of these challenges that are going to come up in mounting a response to both and flag those early for local leaders and especially for already vulnerable communities, make sure a response caters to them and doesn't treat them as an afterthought. And that comes into play with non-native English speakers, folks who are going to have more trouble evacuating or finding places to stay because of resource constraints. As I mentioned, folks who are going to have more trouble accessing existing programs because of cash flow or bank account issues. So I think these are incredibly important and are going to unfortunately play out across the board. Um, so here's a question from Roderick. Um, can you talk about the state revolving loan program in the stalled NFIP as a method of financing building flood hazard mitigation? Yeah, so to the earlier question on kind of new tools, I think bringing forward state revolving funds and federal revolving funds is incredibly important. So whether it's through, you know, the NFIP legislation or we're also looking at a number of ones that are getting created at the state level, these are just another tool we're gonna need in our toolbox to be able to finance, you know, good planning, to finance, you know, in some places buyouts to finance in some places elevation, basically to just give localities more tools they can use. And a lot of these, you know, are structured in a way where you can invest in the types of, you know, things that will end up paying back. So they make a lot of sense that if you don't have that capital available to begin with, you're not going to be able to do it. So it makes a lot of sense. And unfortunately, you know, we haven't seen as quick uptake on these across the board as we'd like, but I think as it becomes clearer what happens when we don't invest, I think we're going to see more momentum and it's definitely something we're pushing for. Um, a question from Kate, how do you assess which communities to support and aid first when a disaster hits and how, how do you prioritize or what's the best practices for prioritizing that? Yeah, I think, um, you know, for us as an organization, what we do is all of our kind of resources and materials are available to everyone at the same time. Um, and, you know, as a coalition, we're free to join. So we try to just make all of our materials kind of accessible and help as many people as possible and also realize that we're not going to be able to engage with everyone, which is why we also care about changing broader policy to the point on kind of where federal resources go. I think this is often a challenge of kind of who might get a declaration, where resources are directed first. And I think the kind of considerations in that decision-making have been pointed out for a long time as a challenge and are something we need to work through, especially, you know, I'll point out and make a shout out, the comment period for BRIC, FEMA's new pre-disaster fund, are still open until May 11th. This is gonna be the biggest injection of money going pre-disaster. And so mm -hmm. making sure that this program is set up in a way that's fair, equitable, thinks about disadvantaged populations and corrects some of these problems we see is incredibly important. Um, a question from Randolph. Um, the current COVID crisis, do you think it's a headwind or a tailwind to the needed investments we need in wet infrastructure? 
Mm. To be honest, I'm not sure. I think I'm hopeful that this is something that pushes us in the right direction if we have a big infrastructure package. And I think there's a lot of folks that are really thinking about how to make sure that money gets spent serves dual purposes and takes into account, you know, the larger challenges we need and is spent well. You know, how it will get constructed, I don't know, but we're working really hard to make sure that this is done well and serves multiple purposes. Um, and a question from Corinne, are there local strategies to handle um, when a, there's a worldwide disaster and a local disaster um, at the same time? And I guess that, you know, mm -hmm. maybe it's unavailability of supplies, um, you know, kind of inattention to support from other places, things like that. Yeah, I think this can be a real challenge. And this is something we're actually going to be, we're working on now and are going to be releasing soon is kind of a step by step of core issue areas for local governments, because there's a number of things to consider. I mean, one that we didn't even touch on is a lot of cities have mutual aid agreements and the places that you might want to bring in aid from if you get flooded might change if there's a COVID disaster and the place that you're calling in aid from is incredibly hard hit or a lot of folks there that you might have relied on could potentially have been exposed to the virus. So there's a lot of these things that we're going to need to think through. I think this is a really unique situation and we're going to have to come up with a lot of this guidance taking into account the kind of unique situation we're in. But we're trying to pull that together now with folks we work with to make sure that every local leader doesn't have to think through it individually and can draw on a lot of the best practices and kind of thinking that others are doing. Um, and then the last question is from Tom. Um, what should FEMA be doing right now that it isn't doing or that um, it should be doing more of? Mm. I think that's, yeah, I think, um, you know, right now, I think folks at FEMA are just working so hard responding to kind of an unprecedented response in the moment. One thing I'll mention generally that I think is really important across agencies is that right now we're spending a lot of, so not for this moment, but more broadly, we're spending a lot of time thinking about developing more and more granular kind of risk maps. So, you know, FEMA's doing a 2.0 review of their maps. NASA's developing more granular maps. Across agencies, we're saying, how do we get better and better data, which is good. But right now, no agency, including FEMA, thinks it's in their mandate to communicate to individuals and homeowners and Americans what their risk is so that they understand it. Mm -hmm. And that's the big pain point for me, where I would say, it's great that we have more accurate maps but who's going to take responsibility for making sure people understand their flood risk, know if they are at risk and can do something about it because that's really what we see. And that's what's so devastating is when people have no idea they're at risk and then all of a sudden their front yard floods or their home floods or their first floor. So how do we make sure that doesn't happen anymore? And is, is the data available or is it, I guess, collectible to create some type of score that you can provide to individual homeowners or is that too granular of data um, for like mm -hmm. something like an energy star type of score where they can say well this property is an 80 but if you bought that house over there that's a 90 in mm -hmm. terms of flood risk yeah so we are actually seeing i think we're at a point with the computing power and modeling now where that's definitely possible 
And we're seeing a lot of that happen, you know, in the philanthropic sector, in startups, in the academic world. But what we're not seeing, I think, is kind of the federal agencies leading that charge. And that's probably what we want as well, is for them to take, you know, a role in thinking it's their responsibility to communicate. But in terms of where this is going, you know, groups like First Street Foundation are making a lot of that data publicly available and free. Groups like the startup Jupiter are putting a lot of it out there. We see modeling from a lot of universities that's, you know, incredibly granular and incredibly accurate. So I think this data is going to be there. The question is, how is it communicated? Who has access to it? And how does it get rolled out? Right. Excellent. Well, Melissa, I want to thank you for joining us today. Um, from uh, your place uh, uptown to our place downtown. Um, I want to thank everyone who, who uh, tuned in, I guess, or clicked the right link and uh, listened to us. We're going to be posting this um, on our YouTube, and we'll be sending out the link to that. And there, the report that you mentioned earlier, um, we'd love to send a link to that out too to everyone that uh, watched today so that they have access to that. Um, two weeks from today, we're going to have our innovators in energy uh, discussion um, and keep an eye out for other things coming from the Aspen Institute uh, in the coming days, weeks, and months. So I want to thank everyone for their time. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you.